we're having from one passage, which would be 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 1 to 12. And we're starting from verse 1. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 1. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that you are received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know that the instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this manner, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impunity, but for holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you brothers to do this more and more and to inspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to walk with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. This is the word of the Lord. Hey, can I share with you guys one of the things that I love most in this world? It's cruise control. Uh, I love that we live in a fantastic, wonderful age where we have the technology to go from location A to location B in my Honda Civic with as little effort as possible. Uh, if you don't happen to know what cruise control is, it's this magical feature in cars where instead of having your foot on the accelerator the whole time, you can flick a switch and take your foot off the pedal and then the car just keeps going at the same speed. Whoever invented cruise control, I am forever in your debt. Uh, but friends, cruise control is great for cars, but not for your Christian life. There's a temptation to think, I've done well in the past. I'm even doing okay right now. I've gotten up to speed, so now's the time to hit cruise control and stop there. Paul instructs the Thessalonians against that just today. He says, you're doing well, but now it's time to keep your foot on the accelerator more and more. You're doing great. Do it more and more. Don't hit cruise control. Press on more and more. Uh, that phrase more and more comes up twice in our passage at the start of verse 1. We urge you, just as you've been walking to please God, do so more and more. And at the end of verse 9 to 10, concerning brotherly love, you've been doing that for all the brothers throughout Macedonia, but we urge you brothers to do this more and more. You guys have started great. Thessalonian church, SLE church, you guys have started great. Do it more and more. Uh, so let me pray and ask God that he would speak this word to us today about this more and more life. Let's pray. Father, speak to us today from your word. As people hear it, don't let people hear the words of men, but rather what it really is, the word of God. And I pray that people receive it with power, with full conviction, as your Holy Spirit works to move people. 
as we ponder what it means to live this more and more life that pleases you, challenge our thinking, which says, I'm comfortable. I don't need to listen because I'm okay. Challenge our hearts, which care more about pleasing ourselves than pleasing you, and cause real, tangible, visible, physical change to be lived out in the lives of people here. I pray for your help now. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, I've started off my previous two sermons by saying, here's the main point. If this is all you listen today and fall asleep after, that's great. Uh, but last time I looked around, maybe five minutes in, and I saw people nodding off. And I was disappointed. I was shocked. But that's my fault. That's not your fault. That's my fault. I've learned. So here's the main point. But I'd love if you'd stay awake. <laughs> uh, here it is. A life pleasing to God involves walking for him more and more. I repeat that. A life pleasing to God involves walking for him more and more. Uh, a bit of context of where we're up to in the book of 1 Thessalonians, because I think it's important. A bit of a recap of our journey. In chapter 1, Paul thanks God for how the gospel has come into them and gone out of the Thessalonians, and he says that shows how they're genuine Christians. In chapters 2 and 3, we get to see how Paul was a genuine gospel minister. And last week, Ben showed us that the genuine gospel minister rejoices in hearing the report of their genuine faith. And he tells them that he prays earnestly for the exact things that we're going to see today in our passage. This week in chapter 4, we see Paul's specific instructions for the things that he prayed about for the Thessalonians. This week, Paul is saying, do this, do this, do this. But I really want us to understand who he's writing to. Paul is addressing genuine Christians who have received the gospel by faith. This passage is for Christians uh, to know instruction on how to live as people who have been called to a different life. So that means if you're not a Christian here and here today, or if you're not sure, don't go out of this thinking, this is what I need to do to please God. No, first respond to the gospel uh, and respond to Jesus' invitation of forgiveness and eternal life through trusting in him. So then the question is this. If being saved as a Christian is purely based on faith and grace, why all these instructions commands? The answer is there in verse 1. Living this way pleases God. See the word please. It's relational. We don't follow a bunch of rules because we've got a strict ruler or an author authoritative dictator bearing down on us. We follow these instructions because they are from our loving Father who has given them to us. It glorifies Him. It makes Him happy. We can actually live in a way it brings a smile to the face of our Heavenly Father. We don't live this way out of fear, as if God is watching us, waiting for us to, uh, to slip up and catch us out. Because in some sense, our Heavenly Father will always be pleased with us, no matter how we perform. When I repent and I have faith in Jesus Christ to receive salvation, uh, as we heard before, God, when God looks at me, He doesn't see my rotten performance. He sees the performance of Jesus, his perfect performance. Because I'm united to him in faith, God sees me as if I'm covered in Jesus Christ's purity and righteousness and holiness. And here's attention. How we live matters too. 
And we get, we, we get some sense of it when we think about parents and children. Most of you can say that your parents will love you no matter what. No matter how imperfect you are, how many times you stuff up, that they won't disown you and they won't cut you off. But there's a way of living that pleases them, that make, brings them joy, that makes them proud and brings a smile to their face. Applying that to our Heavenly Father, for those who have received this gospel with faith and trust in Jesus, you were adopted as God's child. You have a secure and sure salvation that isn't dependent on your works. But you follow these instructions, not because you want to earn your father's love, but because you want to please your father who has been so good to you and because you love him. Uh, the Thessalonians are already living a life that's pleasing God. Paul wants to encourage them and praise them for doing that. Live a life pleasing to God more and more. Um, and so we look at three ways in our passage today that they have to do that. The first one dominates verses 3 to 8, and it will take up most of the time. Walk in holiness in your sexual self-control more and more. Uh, that's the first instruction. But before we get to that fun topic of sex, a quick word on holiness. Uh, be holy. That's a simple command that Paul gives the Thessalonians. Holiness, by definition, is being like God, being separated from the world, and being pure. And your holiness is a big deal to God. So much so that Paul says in verse 3, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. In verse 7, For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. And the word sanctification there is just process of you becoming more and more holy. More and more good, more and more pure more and more distinct and different to the world, more and more like God. We often wonder, what is God's will for my life? Um, I've had a couple of these questions myself. Is it God's will for me to become a doctor or an accountant? Is it God's will that I marry this girl or that girl? Uh, is it God's will that I have shin ramen for dinner or cereal? Um, <laughs> I want to know God's will because I think those are important, but actually, no. God tells us what his will for us is here. My will for you is to be holy. My desire, what I want, what I'm calling you for in your life is to be holy. Live a life that's set apart and distinct and pure and pleasing to me. That's what God desires for you. And Paul moves quickly to an outworking of this in the Thessalonians' lives in the area of sexual purity. Let's talk about sex. It's not a topic that we're comfortable talking about. It's touchy. It's pretty uncomfortable. And to be honest, I feel pretty weird preaching on it. <laughs> but it's the word of God. So let's listen to what he says. Uh, this is a command. Read with me in verse 3. This is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Sexual immorality, by definition, is everything outside the faithful sexual relationship between one man and one woman and the good commitment of marriage. So avoid sexual immorality because your holiness pleases God. Uh, now, there's a couple of teachings in the Bible that you talk to your non-Christian friends about, and they're going to agree with you. Love your neighbor as yourself. Mm, so good. I, love, I, I like that. Give to the poor. That's a great thing you should be doing. Mm, thumbs up. Thumbs up. 
But avoid sex before marriage. Don't move in with your boyfriend or girlfriend. Don't watch porn. Nah, big cross. Nah, that, that's weird. You're a weirdo for believing those things. And I think Paul knows that sexual holiness isn't going to come naturally to them, and it's not going to come naturally to us. It's at huge odds with the society that we live in today. And it was sexually radical to be, uh, it was radical to be sexually holy in the Thessalonians' time as well. Um, according to a commentary, the most common temples at the time were the cults of Cabarrus and Dionysus, both of which involved having sex at the temple as many times as possible. They lived in, and we now live in, a sexually crazed, sexually promiscuous, sexually disordered world. Which is why I think he spends longer on this command than he spends on any other one. He gives three reasons, three tools, that I want you to have in your bag when temptation comes, and it will come. Three tools that you'll be able to use to fight sexual immorality. Uh, here's the three reasons. It wrongs yourself and it aligns with those who don't know God. It wrongs others, and God takes that seriously. And it wrongs God, who's put his Holy Spirit into you. First one, read with me in verses 4 and 5. Abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. If you lose control and you give into your urges and your lust, you're not just treating your own body with, uh, sorry, you're not treating your own body with holiness and honor. Uh, holiness we already talked about, you're making yourself unclean. You're getting into your bed, not in your pajamas, but in your outside clothes and your shoes on, which is the dirtiest thing I've, I've heard uh, an Asian can do. <laughs> you're not imitating or pleasing God. Honor, on the other hand, is the respect and recognition and value of something. Honor is giving its, its proper value. Your body has value, and your sex life has value. And friends, we know this, don't we? I've had dear friends tell me with tears in their eyes how unclean how guilty, how impure, how devalued they felt after committing those sexual acts with their partner. They would try to shower and scrub it off as much as they could to get rid of those feelings. I know it myself, when I've felt that way, when I've looked at porn and I've sinned. How about you? One of the ways that we try to ignore that feeling is that we try to justify ourselves. We look to people around us and say, other people are doing it right. But Paul says here, see those other people? They don't know God. They don't have a relationship with him. They don't want to please him. They, want to, they, don't, they don't want to bring him holiness and honor. They don't know God. So don't try to be like them. Verse 5 again, control your own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. 
So check who you're listening to when it comes to these matters on sex. Who or what you listen to, watch or read, will either encourage or conflict with your holiness in your sexual self-control. The influence is everywhere. In the mates that you chat to at work. In the Netflix shows that you watch. In Taylor Swift's new album. Take them with a grain of salt because they don't know God. Uh, which leads nicely into Paul's second point. Uh, here's something that I've often heard from my mates. I wonder if you've heard it yourself. As long as it's consensual, it's all good. As long as it doesn't hurt anyone else, it's fine. Paul says, no, 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 it does hurt others. Don't calibrate your thinking to match the world which doesn't know God. We've seen that sexual immorality hurts yourself. It brings unholiness and dishonor on yourself. And presumably, if you're doing that with someone else, it's bringing the same things to them as well. But the common thought of our culture is that it stops at those two people. It's you and one other person involved. But Paul argues against that. Look with me at verse 6. Abstain from sexual immorality that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. Wrongs his brother. Paul is saying here that not having sexual self-control hurts more than just the people that are involved. You're not just wronging that woman. You're wronging the man she's with the man she's married to, or the man she's dating, or the, even the man she's going to marry in the future, and vice versa if you're a woman. You're hurting that person's kids, their parents. Uh, and some of us personally know how much that hurts. To be cheated on, to have to go through a divorce because the person that you thought loved you for the whole of their life, had eyes with someone else. Some of you have parents who have strained marriages or have separated because of sexual unfaithfulness. Some of you know the hurt from other people's sexual sin. I'm sorry you had to go through that. And I hope that those of us hearing this today will be warned and strive more and more not to put other people through this. Uh, I want to drive home a specific application, uh, especially for those who aren't yet married in this church, because we have a lot. Uh, until your wedding day, you are not married. So if your current boyfriend or girlfriend or your future boyfriend or girlfriend show sexual self-control. Here's an analogy. Uh, imagine you're invited to a wedding. It's a beautiful wedding. Uh, maybe even... It's at this church right here. It's decorated beautifully. And to be honest, you're not sure why you're invited. Why? Because it's the wedding of your ex. The bride was someone you used to date, someone you thought you were going to get married to and spend the whole life, your whole life with until it didn't work out. You're sitting in one of the seats here, and the bride is late. So you get a good long time to think to yourself, about all the times that you push the boundaries with her, when you've gotten handsy, when the clothes have come off, when you've stayed over when you know that you shouldn't have, every bad decision. And now imagine the groom could read those thoughts. 
And he has seen all the things that you've done with his soon bride-to-be. How would he feel? Do you think after the ceremony, you could walk up to him and shake his hand and say, brother, I know I used to date your wife. But while we were dating, I treated her with utmost honor and holiness and the value she deserves. Enjoy your marriage together. Uh, to put the icing on the cake, Paul says sexual immorality wrongs others and it gives them the solemn reason to do this, to avoid it. Uh, there at the end of verse 6, because the Lord is an avenger in these things. Uh, no, Jesus isn't joining Captain America, Iron Man, and the Hulk to fight off Thanos. But the Lord Jesus cares deeply about the holiness and honor of his people, the people that you hurt and dishonor sexually. And if you hurt one of his people that he cares deeply about, he's angry with it. And you're going to have to hold an account to him one day. One last reason. Uh, very quickly, sexual immorality wrongs God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. We see it there in verse 8. Uh, Therefore, whoever disregards these instructions disregards not man, but God, who puts his Holy Spirit in you. It's not just sinning against yourself. It's not just sinning against your brother or sister. It's sinning against God, who has put his Holy Spirit in you. Uh, One trouble that I have is that I think, Heavenly Father, Father in heaven, boy, he's far away, isn't he? Uh, But no, he's near. God has put his Holy Spirit to live in you. Okay, two applications from those three reasons. First one is for you out there who is feeling guilty right now. You know you've wronged other people. You know you've wronged yourself. You know you've wronged God. And you've beaten yourself up about it. You've slept with someone before marriage. Or you're in the habit of porn. You're troubled and grieved and you're beating yourself up. Can I say to you, Jesus went to the cross for you. The guilt and shame and the sorrow that you're feeling, Jesus died for that. He wrote his name with his blood over every sin. Every sin that you've committed in the past. The sin that you're committing right now and the sin that you're even going to do in the future. He went to the cross and he took on the flood of God's anger at all of those sins. And after hours on the cross, he drank every last drop of God's anger at your sins and he cried out, it is finished. You are now as white as snow. You are now forgiven. You are now holy. You are without spot or blemish. And if that's you, please take comfort in Jesus. And now live to please him more and more. Uh, Second application. I know there's some people here today who are pleasing God with their sexual self-control. It's fantastic to see how your lives have changed since you've become Christians. All I'm telling you is to not hit cruise control. Keep turning away from this culture that is sex-crazed and keep turning more and more to God. Keep pleasing God with your sexual self-control as you've been doing and do it more and more. And in verse 9 and 10, keep pleasing God more and more 
with your brotherly love. Uh, there's a bit of a tone shift here. I hope you can spot it as we read verses 9 and 12. Paul is overwhelmingly encouraging and supportive. So take a deep breath. <laughs> take a breather. We got through the hard part. Uh, let's see if you can see how encouraging Paul is here. Verse 9 and 10. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. But you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you're doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, do this more and more. Walk more and more in brotherly love. The word brotherly love there encapsulates both brothers and sisters. It's a love that families have one for one another. It's not love because people are likable or even lovable, or because they have similar interests, or because naturally you're best friends, but because you can call God your father and the people around you brothers and sisters. They show that brotherly love for those inside their church. But they also showed it for their brothers and churches all over Macedonia. Uh, now, Thessalonica is the city, and Macedonia is the province or the state. You can think of it like that. And they're so overflowing with love and concern for other people that they can call brothers and sisters um, that, in this case, they're sending these other churches financial aid in their times of need. Just like in the church in Thessalonica, I can see so many examples of brotherly and sisterly love here. I could go on forever, to be honest. Uh, but here's, here's some of the ways I see it. People give up their time to look after other people's kids so that they can study the Bible together. When the floods happen, people open out their houses so that people could stay in them. You guys just genuinely love hanging out with each other after Bible study or church. You guys are each other's shoulder to cry on when times are tough. I, I really could go on forever in how I see this. Love abounds here. Uh, I, I'd say it's one of our strong points. Uh, and it overflows beyond just this church. Uh, maybe we don't have as strong connections with our churches in Queensland, but I've seen this love go overseas. Uh, if you were there in church camp a couple of weeks ago, we saw uh, churches in Singapore genuinely give thanks for how much SLE has helped and supported them. That SLE is a sending church. Uh, friends, can I say, it is so awesome that you guys are doing that. You are doing a great job. It gives, it brings God a smile on his face when you show this type of brotherly and sisterly love. I know so many great examples of you guys, and I'd, I'd love to learn from you guys, because you're doing great. But don't let up. Don't be satisfied with just doing that. Don't hit cruise control. Step on the accelerator and keep pressing on. Do this more and more. Uh, one last late way Paul says we're to live a life pleasing to God uh, is in verse 12. We see the result that Paul wants right there. So that you may walk properly before outsiders. Outsiders being people who aren't Christian and be dependent on no one. He gives three specific ways that the Thessalonians had to do that in verse 11. Aspire to live quietly, mind your own affairs, and work with your own hands. Christians should strive to have peaceful, uncontentious, uncontentious, hard-working lives. People outside the church should be able to look at your life and respect it. They might not necessarily agree with the things that you believe in, but they shouldn't have the distaste in you because you're living in an improper way, because you're stirring up trouble, 
because you're a busybody and unnecessarily getting involved in other people's business. Because you're lazy and causing trouble for other believers and unbelievers. And the hope of all of this is people who aren't Christian can see your transformed life that lives for God more and more, and they stop and they think, why are they like this? My hope is that they see the true and living God is behind this work. Uh, there's some of you listening today who aren't Christians. Can you see a different life in the Christians sitting around you today? Okay. Lastly, the big charge of this passage is to live in a way that's pleasing to God more and more. And how do you do that? By walking in holiness and your sexual self-control more and more. By loving your brothers and sisters more and more. By walking properly before outsiders more and more. Now, there's a lot of people uh, in this church listening to this uh, today um, and hearing this message. What does this passage say to all of us? Christians, if you have seen evidence of God working in your life, bit by bit, making him, you more like him in your holiness and your love for others and your walk, that is great. That's fantastic. You're not perfect, but day by day, week by week, month by month, you're working together with God to please him, to live a life that's more for him. That is so great. I thank God that he's working in your life. And I want to encourage you that you are pleasing God when you do that. But I also want to challenge you. Keep doing this more and more. You've done great in the past, but don't live in the past. I want to see you standing firm to the end. Stand firm fighting sin with the successes and the failures that you have until that day that we no longer have to. The day where the trumpet shall sound and Jesus returns from the heavens and descends and we see him face to face. Don't take your foot off the pedal in your Christian walk. Live to please God more and more. Press on. Uh, for gospel ministers, uh, and when I say gospel ministers, I don't just mean the church staff team. I mean everyone who has a desire to grow the people around you. For gospel ministers, let's learn from Paul's example in this book. Uh, last week, Paul prays that the Thessalonians would grow more and more in their holiness and love and walk before outsiders. This week, the purpose of Paul writing is to encourage them and to challenge them. I want to address two dangers. Uh, of doing one without the other. First danger is if all you do is challenge those around you. If you bark out instructions and tell people how they could have done better. Uh, maybe that's the way that you've been brought up by your Asian parents. B plus, not good enough, could have done better. I know you have good intentions, but I hope the people around you can see that they already please God. I hope that they don't feel like a failure. Uh, the other danger is if you're only encouragements. The danger there is that people aren't warned about their blind spot or potential dangers. There's a danger that people think that they've made it in their Christian life and they take their foot off the accelerator. The people around you need to be challenged. 
Uh, if you meet up with anyone, it's terrific that you do. And I want to challenge you to reflect on this passage and send those people, send, send the people that you meet up with a letter or a message or meet up with them and actually tell them, this is how I've seen you please God with your life. Do it more and more and pray that it would happen. Very lastly, if you're not a Christian and you've got through the sermon, uh, can I say, I'm really glad you came. But everything that I've said in the past half an hour, that's not for you. (laughs) I don't want you to walk out here thinking, this is how I can please God. These instructions are for those who are ready in a relationship with God and are part of his family. They're only there for people who are already trusting in Jesus as the only one who can save them from the wrath of God. So if that's you, I I want you to consider trusting in Jesus for yourself. The good news of Jesus is that by trusting in him and believing that he was the son of God who died in your place, you can be forgiven and saved. But But choosing to follow him as your king will probably look very different to your life right now. Take the instructions today. Christians live completely different lives in terms of sex, in terms of loving others, and in terms of work. But those those things don't come natural to us. And I'm sure they don't come natural to you as well. Following Jesus comes at a huge cost. But the Christians around you and in our passage today, they knew that cost before they got into this. And yet they still chose Jesus. Why? Because he is undoubtedly worth it. So I want to invite you to continue checking out Jesus to see if he's worth following and trusting with your life. Uh, Maybe some point along the line, actually maybe even right now, I want to invite you to consider what it's going to be, what it's going to cost you to follow Jesus for your life. I want you to make that choice and decide if you want to throw your life in with him and to trust him with your life and respond to Jesus' offer of forgiveness and eternal life through trusting in him. Let's pray. Dear Holy Father, thank you so much that we can call you our Father because of the work of your son, Jesus. It is such a gift that we have a relationship with you. Father, I thank you for all the genuine Christians here at Esley Church, for the brothers and sisters who already please you with their lives. Thank you for how you've worked in them. And I pray that they would live to please you more and more. Amen.